Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for today, God. And Lord, we just thank you, God, so much, Lord, that, that we have a place that we can come to gather together. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for everyone that you have drawn here this morning, God, in our earlier services and now, and Lord, those that are on our live stream service. And God, I just thank you so much, Lord, just for the fact that we can just come and behold and worship a holy God. Lord, because whenever I just think about that, God, so oftentimes, Lord, that sounds like it should be crazy, um, Lord, just because of our sinfulness. Um, and God, just the way that we have all rebelled against you, Lord, that we shouldn't be able to come into the presence, um, Lord, of a holy God. But Lord, I thank you so much, um, Lord, just for, for Colossians 3 or 2.13, God, that says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of our debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. God, I thank you so much, uh, Lord, just as this morning as we get to come and worship you and behold a holy God, that Lord, it's because of what you've done for us. Um, Lord, in sending your son Lord, to live a life that we could have never lived and to die a death on the cross, Lord, that we all deserve to die. And Lord, I thank you, Lord, just so much for your grace and the mercy that you've shown us in that. Um, and Lord, I just pray that that just helps us just to worship you each and every day, that Lord, that it helps us as we live life, God, knowing that in Christ, Lord, we have everything. Lord, that he is all sufficient, God, for those that are in our church and those that are in our community that are suffering right now, Lord, that he is sufficient. God, for us in our daily lives as we go through trials, and, Lord, temptations that he is all-sufficient. God, as we go through things, the Lord, that comes out of nowhere, Lord, that we weren't expecting that you are sufficient. God, that you nailed our cross to the sin in Christ. Lord, forgiving us of the thing that we ultimately needed. Lord, and that was our forgiveness of sins. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would just help us just to worship you. Um, God, I pray that you'd be with Tim now as he brings the word to us. God, that you would open up our ears and our hearts. Um, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate the word, Lord, in our hearts, Lord, and that we would just respond to you. God, that we would walk more faithfully with you. God, that we would serve you more faithfully. God, and that we would just walk in the love that you have shown us. And so, Lord, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Thank you guys for being here this morning at our 11 o'clock service. And uh, the plan is for this to be the last time we do this uh, with three services on a Sunday morning. Next week, we will move back to two services, and that will be both in this room, one at 9.15, one at 10.30. 10.30 will be live streamed, 9.15 will not be, and uh, so we appreciate your flexibility over the last few weeks where we've uh, gone to three services just for the month of January, and uh, we'll now in February, and hopefully until we get back into our main building, be two services in this room, 9.15 and 10.30. So, Hope you'll join us for one of those next week. Um, also want to let you know that tonight, um, youth is a little bit different. The youth ministry is meeting at 4 o'clock today to go ice skating, and AJ is going to be giving lessons for everybody. And so if you have a student, if you are a student, then um, join AJ at 4 o'clock at the church. And students will be back about 7. They'll have pizza here. They'll be ready to go if you have kids that are in both programs, both Awana, which is normal tonight, 6 to 7.30, and youth will be back by 7, eat pizza, and be ready to go at 7.30 if you have kids in both programs. And the youth can also stay later than that to hang out if they want to. Um, there are life groups meeting tonight. There were some life groups that met this morning. Anytime you have questions about life groups, um, let me know. There's also 
a number of Bible studies. Um, there's a couple of women's Bible studies, the Wednesday morning Bible study, um, the, there's a Monday night Bible study, there's some other Bible studies during the week for women, and there's a couple Bible studies for men. If you want more information about that, a lot of that's in the e-update already, but if you want more information about any of that, please let us know, because it's a great time to get connected in things. Um, as we came in today, uh, you saw the table with the communion elements. We will be celebrating the Lord's Supper at the end of the service today. So how it's going to work is when I finish the sermon, uh, the band's going to come up and lead us in a song. At the end of that song, we will, ha- we will receive the Lord's Supper together. Um, so if you don't have those now, when we sing that last song, go, and there's a, there's a plate right there with them, and there's some in the lobby too, to make sure you have those for the close of that song. Uh, We're talking about the kingdom of God today, so let's turn to Luke chapter 17 together. There's a movie that came out a number of years ago. I actually enjoyed the movie, even though it was only partially accurate, Um, and it's kind of based on a historical event, and the movie's called The Kingdom of Heaven, and it's a movie about the Crusades, about a time in medieval Christian history in which the uh, Catholic Church and various rulers in Europe commissioned their armies to go and to take back portions of Jerusalem and the Promised Land from Muslim rulers who had controlled that land for that time. And there's this really interesting um, thing that you see as you watch this movie and as you see it unfold. There's this question of what is the kingdom of heaven and what is the kingdom of God? It's our question for today for this passage. Because if you look back on that period of, of Christian history, and again, the movie only represents part of it. There's some things that are accurate and some that are not. But that period of, of Christian history, there was this movement where the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, was to be expanded by force by taking back God's lands for God's people, and they would also uh, acquire uh, different uh, uh, different. Uh, I'm losing the word here. They would acquire things there that would be like, oh, well, this belonged to Jesus, this belonged to Mary, this belonged to John. They collected icons that they could carry back to the churches and put in their churches and as an evidence of, hey, this is where we were in Jerusalem and this is what we brought back as a memory of that so that we could use it to enhance our confidence or in some cases even enhance our worship. So there's a lot of questionable things that went on in that period. It wasn't a good adaptation of the teachings of Jesus in every way. And and it's going to be really clear from this passage why that is the case. Because the problem that starts the passage for today is this question for the Pharisees of, when's the kingdom going to come? And the Pharisees thought, like the Crusaders did, that the kingdom of God was to be expanded by force swords and armor and soldiers and army. That's how you expand the kingdom of God. That's the sort of kingdom that the Pharisees were looking for. That is not the sort of kingdom that Jesus is building through his people. And so Jesus is, this is another example in this passage where somebody comes to Jesus and asks a question, and he answers a question that is not the question that they asked him. Because he recognizes in his response to them that they've asked the wrong question that they've asked a question from a place of ignorance or from a place of distrust, because what the Pharisees were actually trying to do was disprove Jesus. They were attacking Jesus in in some way to, to sort of catch him saying something wrong. And so he knew that they had to, that when they asked the question, he had to shift the answer to get them thinking in a different direction. 
their question in and of itself revealed their ignorance of the subject matter. They asked, when is the kingdom coming? And they never asked, what is the kingdom like? And so Jesus' answer to the when question is the answer to the what question. He not so much focuses on when the kingdom is coming, although he does with his disciples after the fact, but with the Pharisees, he answers the what question. This is what the kingdom is like. So first, before we dive in, we're we're Luke 17, 20 through 37 today. And what we're going to do is we're going to see six truths about the kingdom of God from that one passage. And we'll unpack it piece by piece going through. But before we do that, I want to give you a little bit of information about what the kingdom of God is throughout scriptures, okay? Uh, The kingdom, a simple definition that is memorable and, and applicable. The kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule and authority. Three elements characterizing the biblical definition of the kingdom of God. Now, you can use that definition and drop into any point in biblical history and see God's people in God's place operating under God's rule and authority. But the kingdom changes over time. It expands. God reveals more of his ultimate purpose and plan, and therefore the nature of the kingdom in Genesis 2 looks different than the nature of the kingdom in 1 Kings, looks different in, uh, in Judges, looks different in Matthew and Luke, as we'll see today. So before the fall, at the very beginning, the kingdom of God was God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's place, the Garden of Eden, under God's rule and authority, having committed no sin, living in perfect relationship with God. But then after they sin, there's a shift in the kingdom of God. And it wasn't a shift of the people of God fixing the problem. That's never how it works in Scripture, in the way God, God does things in His kingdom and throughout history. God doesn't, allow, doesn't make people fix their own problems of their own sin. God's the one that brings the solution. So God's people sin, they reject his authority in his place, and they break the relationship. So then God, over the rest of the Old Testament, unveils section by section, point by point, his ultimate plan for his kingdom. And first, it's Abraham. Genesis 12, he makes a promise to Abraham, you are now my people. Okay, so God's people in Genesis 2 is Adam and Eve. By the time you get to Genesis 12, it's the descendants of Abraham. And God's place in Genesis 12, is the land of Canaan, the promised land for Abraham and his descendants. God's rule and authority is is to be displayed through God's faithfulness and blessing over this nation and ultimately his law giving to this nation. And then you go a little bit farther into redemptive history and you see the nation of Israel actually moves out of the promised land. They're there in the promised land. And then there's a famine. They move out, they move to Egypt because of the famine, and they become slaves in Egypt. And then God builds his nation in slavery. That's God's intentional plan of nation building, is to build them in Egypt. And then when he brings them out of Egypt, he gives them the place, the promised land, again. He, God's people are the descendants of Abraham, now not just one family, but a nation with hundreds of thousands of people, maybe as many as two million people in the Exodus. And you have the new rule and authority displayed in the Mosaic Covenant. Moses has gone up to Sinai, received the covenant from God, and now brought it back to the people. So the kingdom of God continues to unfold that way. And you have God's rule and authority in the promised land being the judges at one stage, being kings, being priests, being prophets. And all throughout the Old Testament period, you see the kingdom of God on display through God's chosen people, Israel, in God's chosen place, the promised land, mediated under God's authority through 
prophets, priests, kings, judges, etc. And then the Old Testament closes with the expectation of a new, a new manifestation of the kingdom with a new ruler. And that person's known as the Messiah. And so the Old Testament closes with Ezekiel and Jeremiah having anticipated a new covenant and a new Messiah and a new kingdom. Okay? So then you drop in on Luke 17. And the Pharisees are living with that anticipation of the new kingdom. And they ask Jesus the question, when? When will the new kingdom come? Now, we learned a couple weeks ago, at this stage, the Pharisees were 100% decided against Jesus already. This was not a question that came in good faith. This was a question meant to trick Jesus, meant to catch him saying something he wasn't supposed to say. They didn't really care about his answer. They just wanted to see what he would say so they could catch him saying something that the establishment wouldn't like, that they could turn the people against him. And so his answer is, the kingdom is in your midst. So let's look. Luke chapter 17, verse 20. The people who are anticipating this Messiah get it wrong, and they miss the Messiah. Uh, Luke 17, 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. See, the Pharisees were part of that group of people that were anticipating the Messiah by anticipating somebody that looked a lot like David. And to be somebody that looked a lot like David, that's who the Messiah was supposed to be, a descendant of David to sit on David's throne. So you're talking about physical king, physical throne, defeating physical enemies, swords, armies, all that kind of stuff. When a new kingdom comes, an old kingdom falls. Like that's, that's how you establish a new kingdom. Kingdoms are not established in a vacuum where there is no rule. You, you cannot have a new kingdom without the fall of an old kingdom. So what the Pharisees are thinking is clearly the, the kingdom of God has not come because Herod, fake Jewish king, is on the throne in Jerusalem, but Herod is a fake king under the authority of Caesar who's in Rome. And so as long as Caesar's on his throne and Herod's on his throne, that means no new kingdom has come because the old kingdom's still here. And so you see where, I mean, it makes sense what the Pharisees are thinking. Everything they see physically is no new kingdom has come. So they're asking when? And the question is essentially, when is the Messiah going to overthrow Caesar? That's what they were looking for. And Jesus says, no, no, no. You don't understand what the kingdom of God is like. So stop asking when and look around because it's in the midst of you. Um, they expect the literal return of the, Demitic, of the Davidic monarchy while the Messiah is standing right in front of them saying, I'm here. In Mark 1, Jesus shows up and he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Basically saying the kingdom of God is here. And he says, repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God spreads through the person of Jesus and through the message of the gospel. So wherever Jesus goes, the kingdom goes. Wherever the gospel goes, the kingdom goes. Think about where we are now in redemptive history. We're not in Eden pre-fall. We're not in slavery in, um, in Egypt. We're not in the promised land. Dalton, Georgia is not the promised land. But, I mean, it feels like the promised land, right? But we're in a new stage of redemptive history. So who are God's people? What is God's place? And what is God's rule and authority for us now? Well, the, the, the simple answer is 
God's, God's people are the people of Jesus. And so when Jesus shows up, from the point that Jesus says, the kingdom of God is here, repent and believe the good news, he's identifying the kingdom with himself as God's chosen mediator between God and man. And he's identifying the place of God's kingdom as wherever Jesus is standing at the time. And he's identifying the people of Jesus' kingdom as not just himself, but also any of those who follow him. And the rule and the authority are those who gain righteousness through the shed blood of Jesus. That's how people enter into the kingdom of God. So the Pharisees are looking for physical ruler, overcoming physical enemies, and they're missing the fact that the kingdom of darkness is falling in front of Jesus every single day. But they miss it. Because every time Jesus casts a demon out of, out of an oppressed person, that's the kingdom of darkness losing ground and falling. Every time Jesus heals somebody of sickness, that's the kingdom of darkness falling. Every time Jesus raises a little girl from the dead or raises Lazarus from the dead, eventually raises himself from the dead, the kingdom of darkness is falling. Even as he pushes back the storm, the kingdom of darkness is falling. And he is clearly claiming authority over all the created order, all disease, and over all forces of evil. And he is saying, I have the right, the authority, and the power to push back. And so there's a kingdom falling right in front of their eyes. They're just looking at the wrong kind of kingdom. They're obsessed with the physical Caesar sitting on a physical throne and not seeing the ruler of the darkness of this world losing ground every day right in front of their eyes. And see how Jesus is building a kingdom that they do not expect. The Pharisees can't see it because they're looking for the wrong things. And if, you look, if you're not looking for the right thing, you're never, going to find, you're never going to find the ultimate object of your desire. If I were to give one of my kids, okay, so let's say for the purpose of this illustration, I picked on Jericho, and then I changed it to Karis. I'm going to leave it with Karis in this one, okay? I did three services. You can tell a story different time, different ways every time. So Karis, okay? Let's say I give Karis the instruction. Karis, go pick out some shoes and give her only that level instruction and tell her to go look for her shoes. There is no telling what the end result's going to be. Because if you send somebody looking for something and don't give them the, the description of what they're ultimately looking for, who knows what they're going to end up with. So if I tell Karis, hey, you're going to go play outside, the ground's a little bit wet, get some shoes to play outside with. Karis is 100% going to bring plastic princess dress-up shoes that are not functional for playing outside in wet ground. But that's what she's going to do because she's looking for things through her mind and not through what I'm intending to tell her. The Pharisees are never going to find the kingdom by getting better eyesight, by being more observant. They're not going to find the kingdom unless their hearts change, and as their hearts change, their minds are enlightened to look for the right things. Because if you keep looking for Caesar to fall and Herod to fall, you're not going to notice the significance of the demons being cast out of that man. And so the kingdom is there. It's right there in front of them. It's standing in front of them in the person of Jesus, and they don't know. Some of your translations, if you're, if you're looking at your Bible, in verse 21, I just want to make a point of this. In verse 21, it might say, the kingdom of God is in you. And I think that's a confusing translation for this reason. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, okay? So I do not believe, that's the reason why 
So I use the ESV, and I don't usually talk about differences in translation, but it might be a question that you have in reading your translation. It might say, the kingdom of God is in you, as the last phrase of verse 21. The kingdom of God is not in the Pharisees. What Jesus is saying to a group of people, some of them well-meaning disciples that just want to learn and follow, and some of them Pharisees that are set out against him, and then him himself. And he's saying to everybody in the group, the kingdom of God is right here in your midst. And it's like he's saying, the kingdom of God is right here in me. I'm the new revelation of the kingdom. I'm the entrance into the kingdom. So come and enter the kingdom through me. That's, that's what that language translates to. But the kingdom of God is not always manifested by outward signs. And Jesus is saying, it's not coming in a way, in verse 20, it's not coming in a way that can be observed. That means your eyes might not always see the falling of darkness and the incoming of a new kingdom. But here's what does demonstrate the coming of the kingdom. Everything we talked about last week. Well, kingdom living is repentance. Kingdom citizenship is rebuke, is forgiveness, is faith, is service, is gratitude. All of those things that we talked about last week as descriptions of living in Christ's kingdom, that's what you look for for the coming of the kingdom. Repentance, forgiveness, gratitude, faith, and service. That's how you see that the kingdom is moving. So that's what you want to look for. If you want to look for what God is doing in our community, in your circle, you don't always have to go looking for outward signs and, and big, big things. Look for hearts that are changed. Minds that are changed. Hearts that are inflamed for the goodness of Jesus. That's how you see the gospel. That's how you see the kingdom expanding. So the Pharisees can't see it, but the disciples will long for it. Now, here's an important part of the kingdom of God that has to be clearly expressed in this passage. Every time Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, it sounds contradictory, but the better word is paradox. Jesus' teaching of the kingdom is full of paradoxes. Because in this one passage, in verse 20, he says, hey Pharisees, stop waiting for the kingdom, it's here, pay attention. And then a couple of verses later, he says, hey disciples, when the kingdom comes, this is what it will look like. And you're like, wait, wait, wait. You just told the Pharisees, stop waiting for it to come because it's here. And then you told the disciples, it's not here. So which is it, Jesus? And then later on in this passage, there's another part, paradox. He says to the disciples, don't worry. When the kingdom comes, you won't miss it. It will be obvious. And then the very next verse he says, but some people will miss it. And so, so which one is it, Jesus? Is the kingdom here or not here? Is the coming of the kingdom obvious or not obvious? And when Jesus talks to multiple groups, he says things in different ways to challenge and comfort at the same time. A word of challenge to the Pharisees, a word of conviction to the, to the crowd that hasn't made a decision yet, and a word of comfort to the disciples who are already seeking to follow him. Jesus can do all three at the same time, and it sounds like a paradox to us. But if we take the time to unpack it, we see that the kingdom of God is best described as now and not yet, as already here and not yet here in fullness. That's the way the kingdom of God works. Because as soon as Jesus shows up, I told you Mark 1, Jesus says, the kingdom is here. Repent and believe the gospel. From that point on, the kingdom of God is here. And we live 2,000 years after that, the kingdom of God is here. We live as citizens in the kingdom of God. And because we've received 
the shed blood of Jesus and now have the Holy Spirit that dwells in us, boy, we live in even, even fuller sense of the kingdom of God than Jesus' disciples did in the first century because the Spirit of God is with us and in us. We are certainly God's people in God's place, which now includes Dalton, Georgia, and living under God's rule and authority through the teaching of his word in the presence of his spirit. So anyone who receives Jesus is a kingdom citizen that still waits the fullness of the coming kingdom. The kingdom is already here because Jesus has come to inaugurate it. The kingdom is not yet fully here because we still live in a world of sin and disease and evil all around us. And the fullness of the kingdom is better than what we see now. So for the Pharisees, the challenge was, don't miss the inward transformation of hearts and minds that is characterizing the coming of the kingdom. But for the disciples, he comes to the disciples in verse 23 or 22 and following, and he comes to them and he says, wait, wait, wait. now just so you guys know, I did tell the Pharisees that the kingdom is here, but you guys need to know this is not all there is. Don't think this that you see in first century Jerusalem is as good as it's going to get. He's telling the disciples, you will still long for something greater than what you are living in. And when you have that longing, rest assured, all will be made right. The coming kingdom is going to be so much better than what you see now. Because the kingdom of God is already here, but not yet fully here. It's the paradox we live in in the Christian life as kingdom citizens. When he says the disciples will long for it, verse 22 he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of, the sons, uh, one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And what he's saying is the disciples are going to live through such difficulty that they will long for the day when Jesus' power was acutely on display in front of them. And there's going to be days when the disciples are going to be beaten and tortured, and some of them are going to be martyred, when they're going to be like, man, you remember that day when Jesus calmed the storm? I wish he would calm these soldiers now that are persecuting followers of Jesus. You remember that day that Jesus fed the 5,000? I wish he would bring poor, he would bring money, or he would bring food to the poor living in Jerusalem in 70 AD who are suffering under the hands of the Romans and starving to death. Jesus is predicting a time when his followers will suffer and they will long for the days when Jesus was walking around Jerusalem and walking through Galilee and working miracles. And in those days, they would need comfort and they would need assurance that the best is still yet to come. And yeah, you can long for the good old days when Jesus was walking around, but even better than the good old days when Jesus was walking around are the coming days when all will be made right, when new heavens, new earth will come together in a new restored version of Eden where, where the people of God will be fully present with God and there will be no more tears, there will be no more sickness, there will be no more sin, and there will be no more pain. And he's saying, it is right to long for it. And it's a promise for you too. It's a promise not just for those that were following Jesus on that in his earthly life, but it's a promise for all those who follow Jesus in the generations afterwards. In this life you will suffer, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Jesus is saying to followers of him in 30 A.D. Jerusalem and 2022 A.D. Dalton, Georgia. Life is going to be hard. Life hurts. And it is good and right when life hurts to long for the day of Jesus. And so we should, our response to suffering should be, number one, 
Jesus has worked miraculous miracles, first and foremost, our salvation, and so we trust him even when life is hard. So we look back in our suffering to what Jesus has already accomplished for us. But also in our suffering, we look forward to say the best is yet to come, that the fullness of the kingdom of God is just not ours yet. And we live in a measure of the kingdom of God right now with a measure of the blessing of the kingdom of God. But one day, Christ will return again and bring the fullness of his presence in the kingdom of God. Romans 8 says all of creation is joining with us in this suffering and in this groaning. Romans 8 says creation, the physical world itself, is groaning with the, chains of ch- with the pains of childbirth, waiting for the redemption that comes at Jesus' return. And so when you hurt and when you groan in pain, it makes sense. It makes sense to Jesus. It's not, it's not a lack of faith to be in pain in this world. It's normal to be in pain in this world. Jesus expects it, he predicts it, and he prepares us for it. But he he calls us to long for him in the midst of that suffering. To not just try to fix our problems on our own, but to wait and to live in what he has given us now of the kingdom while we wait for the full consummation of the kingdom. Number three, so number one, Pharisees can't see the kingdom. Number two, the disciples are going to long for the kingdom. Number three, others are going to lie about the kingdom. Verse 23 they will say to you, look, there it is. Look, here it is. Do not go follow them. So Jesus is predicting that because his followers are waiting for the fullness of the kingdom, they will be misled along the way. There will be some that will be fake messiahs, that will be fake messengers of the kingdom that are going to say, look, we've got the signs. We've, we've got the answer. This is what God is doing in this generation. And it's really easy. Some applications of this verse are easy. You can look at some of the like apocalyptic or messianic cults and say, well, like the, the Branch Davidians or, or Jonestown, like that sort of weird stuff that we can easily discount is clearly an example of verse 23. That there will come a day when people will mislead and say things like, okay, the end is near. Here's what the end of the world looks like. But it's not just those that we need to be concerned about. It's also the movements that become so obsessed with outward signs that we, the inward transformation of the heart gets disminished gets diminished along the way. Because Jesus is saying here, the kingdom isn't coming with the signs that you want that can be observed. Jesus elsewhere says, the kingdom, a wicked generation asks for a sign and no sign will be given to them except the sign of Jonah. Jesus is saying, the coming of the kingdom is not all about the signs and wonders. And don't get me wrong, God works miracles and signs and wonders come with his kingdom. But the first and foremost sign and wonder of the coming of the kingdom is the inward transformation he's telling the Pharisees about. The heart that is changed and renewed, that's the ultimate sign of the coming of the kingdom. It's not an outward thing. Inward change should lead to an outward expression, such as the repentance and forgiveness that we talked about last week. But it's not about miracles and signs and wonders. That's not what Jesus is calling us to look for in the coming of kingdom. So we have to look out for the crazy cults, sure. But we also have to look out for those, those emphases on signs and wonders that become so enamored with those that they lose the gospel of inner heart change and the regular, everyday walk of discipleship and growing in maturity of Christ. We also need to look out for those that become so obsessed with, with the timelines and the charts and, and exactly branching out the, the end of the age and, and going to all, these, all this research and everything, and they're so obsessed with the end of the age that it leads to this great level of fear 
without a level of following and discipleship. This is, and, and these are the sort of things that you, that you can find online, and you can find anything online. You can find all kinds of crazy websites that say the, that Jesus is coming back at any date and time you can possibly choose. Somebody out there has a, has a blog post about Jesus coming back at some random time. We've got to be discerning about those. We've got to look and say, look, we can't just trust all of this, and, and how do we know the kingdom of God is coming? We look for where the inward heart change is resulting in outward behavioral change, forgiveness, repentance, grace towards others, growth in faith, gratitude towards the gospel, and service for the sake of the gospel. All those things talked about last week in the first half of Luke 17. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. That's what we look for. That's what we pursue. So others are going to lie about it. Be careful. Number four, for the disciples again, its arrival will be obvious. He says, lightning is going to flash. Verse 24, for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. He says, nobody's going to miss it. You're going to see the lightning flash. Verse 25, the only thing that has to happen first in this passage, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by his generation. So this is the other paradox of the way Jesus talks about the kingdom, is that he's told the Pharisees, it's not coming in outward signs. But then he discerns that the disciples might be afraid now they're going to miss it. And now he says to the disciples, don't worry. Verse 24, essentially what it says to the disciples, don't worry, you're not going to miss it. They're going to miss it. You're not going to miss it. In fact, he says, it's going to be so clear to my followers that it will be like lightning flashing across the sky. And in fact, it's going to be when the end has come, when the fullness of time has really fully come, it will be clear to everybody, but it will be too late for some of those people. A couple weeks ago when we looked at the story of the rich man and Lazarus, we said that hell is truth understood too late. It's exactly what's happening in this passage too. See, in verse 25 and following, we're going to talk about those that miss it, those that are walking along the, the daily duties and they miss the coming of the Son of God. So don't think that Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about when he says it's going to be like a flash of lightning everybody's going to see, and then some people are going to miss it. Some people are going to miss it, recognize it at the flash of lightning, and it's going to be too late for them at that moment. The point of this sign is you, before the Son of Man shows up like a flash of lightning and fills the sky, you've got to make your decision before that. Because that's the deadline. That's when it's too late. That's when everybody will know. Nobody has better theology than the rich man in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. He knows exactly what it's going to take for his brothers to be saved in that story. He knows exactly the message that needs to be proclaimed to his brothers. And he's asking, if you look back, it's a couple of chapters, it's Luke 16. If you look back, he is asking Abraham to send his, this old poor man, Lazarus, to his brothers to preach the good news to them so that they will escape the torment, the torment that the rich man is suffering. He knows all the answers, but he can't change. He can't change his mind at that point. And despite knowing all the answers, it doesn't help him at that point because hell is truth understood too late. And so whether you're one of those people in 25 through 33 here who missed the boat that way or whether you're the rich man, at one day, everybody's going to know the truth that Jesus is the Messiah, is the only way to life, is the only way to salvation. The question is, do you know it in time? Because the flash of lightning is when everybody knows, and it's too late for some. Verse 26 and following, many will miss it. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day 
when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, the fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. I want to say, last week I told you that the first half of Luke chapter 17 needs to be understood in light of Matthew 18. Today I tell you, the second half of Luke 17 needs to be understood in light of Matthew 24. So I'm going to turn over to Matthew 24. And you, you, don't, you can turn there if you want. Uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time there. I'm going to pick up in verse 7. Because what Jesus has just given is a, a list of signs and events of what it's going to look like when he returns, what, what the coming of the Son of Man is going to look like. And he says something pretty similar in Matthew 24, too, as he starts to talk about his return. And I want to read to you what he says in, in Matthew 24 to give you a picture. And here's what I want you to be thinking about. What does the world look like when he returns? And what does the church look like when he returns? Matthew 24 gives us some sense of that. Matthew 24, 7. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. What are the marks of the end of the age? What are the marks of the coming kingdom? Well, nation's going to rise against nation. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. And Jesus says, as far as wars and rumors of wars say, that's just the beginning of the birth pains. It's going to get worse from there. But then he says about Jesus' followers, he says about his own followers, you will be persecuted. We know that. He says, you will also, some of you will fall away. And then it gets actually even a little bit worse. And some of you will turn against each other. He says, some of you, some of my, Jesus says, some of his followers will betray one another. Jesus says, some of his followers will hate one another. And so the picture of the followers of Jesus at the end of the age is a divided church that is biting and devouring one another. Galatians 5, that's what Paul warns us against. Do not bite and devour one another. But that's exactly what Jesus describes as happening at the end of the age. But there's, but there's still some good news at the end. Because as the church is infighting, as the church is being jealous of the growth of other churches, is dividing over, over doctrine, over practice, over, over worship, over style, over whatever, as the church is dividing, the gospel of the kingdom is still being spread. That's the picture of Matthew 24. That's a picture of the end of the age. So I say that as a, as a warning, as a challenge, and as an encouragement to us. No matter how bad the, the church looks, no matter how messed up the people of God look, Jesus is promising that the gospel of the kingdom is going to continue to grow until the very end. And at the point of the end, the gospel will have spread to every nation. So the end of the age, I, I picture it like this. 
where the, to the church on the outward, it just looks like the church is so divided. It looks like the church is fighting over all sorts of things. It looks like Christians are fighting with each other, both within a church and in different churches. But all throughout that, there is this faithful ministry of the gospel going forth through Christ's church and going to every nation, tongue, and tribe. And it's still a beautiful thing, even with all of the mess all around. And brothers and sisters, it sounds a lot like the church in our day. It sounds a lot like the infighting and the rivalry and the, the di different churches warring against each other and different groups within a church warring against each other and all of the distrust and all of the betrayal and yes, even hatred between Christians. We see it in our day. And even when that is the case, God builds his church. God builds his kingdom and the gates of hell will not withstand it and God says this message of the gospel will go to all nations. So, what church do we want to be in that story, right? What, what, what part do we want to play in that? Do we want to play a part in the infighting and the rivalries and the, the betrayal and the hatred of God's people for each other? Or do we want to be part of that faithful gospel remnant that is bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to all nations? Because both will be true of the people of God in the end of the age. And both are true of the people of God in our age, however close we are. It's a warning, but it's also an encouragement. And many will miss it, not because they are wicked like Sodom and Gomorrah. That's actually not what Jesus says here. I, I challenge you. Go in to this passage, Luke 17, 26 through 33. What is the sin that Jesus is condemning the people in Noah's day and Lot's day for? You, you've probably read Genesis. You probably know the story you know how wicked Sodom and Gomorrah is. You know how wicked the people were in Noah's day. Jesus isn't actually talking about that. He doesn't mention sodomy. He, he doesn't mention any, any sort of sexual sin or perversion in this passage. You know what he says? It'll be like the days of, look at verse 28. Or no, we'll, we'll back up to, to Noah first. The days of Noah, verse 26 and 27. They were what? They were eating and drinking, and marrying, and being given in marriage. That was the problem. And then in the days of Lot, verse 28, they were eating, and drinking, buying, and selling, planting, and building. So don't get me wrong here. Genesis is still true. You read the passage of Genesis in both of these stories, you know these people are condemned for their wickedness, and boy are they wicked. But Jesus' point goes beyond that. The problem is not just that the most wicked of all people are going to be condemned for their wickedness. The problem is also that people that don't seem as wicked, that are just distracted, they're still going to be condemned. Because he's not comparing the people to the wickedness of Noah's day and Lot's day. He's comparing them to the distractedness. Sodomy's not the problem. It's eating and drinking and building and planting. Those aren't bad things. We should be doing those things, but it's when, it's when limited things, temporal things, become ultimate things to us. That's where the distraction comes in. Too distracted to make a decision about the kingdom of God. That's how people miss it. And those who miss it will suffer. I tell you, in that day there will be two in bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two grinding um, grain together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? And he said, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Here's the promise, and it's not a fun one, but it's a true one. The promise is those that miss the kingdom of God will suffer. And the suffering will be hard, 
it will be harsh. And so, guys, what do we do about this? What do we do as kingdom citizens in light of all of this? We make sure that we don't miss it. That's, that's an easy application. Nobody wants to miss the kingdom of God in this passage. That's clear. So today, we're going to take the, the shed blood of Jesus and the broken body of Jesus in our hands. We're going to receive it as a reminder of the grace we've received and the gospel we've received. That's a good and beautiful thing. But beyond that, to be a kingdom citizen, we've got to go beyond just the assurance of our own salvation. Like, we, we start there. That's the good and reasonable starting point, to make sure that I am in the faith and that Jesus is my Savior and my sin has been atoned for. But beyond that, we're now as citizens called to be ambassadors, to called to go and spread this message. And we're given the assurance that the kingdom will build, and it's not because of our hard work, it's because of the movement of God through us. So the kingdom is going to keep being built. And the question is, are you going to be a part of it or not? And how will you be a part of it? How will you live as a faithful kingdom citizen? Um, the band can go ahead and make their way up here, and I'm going to read this letter to you. This is from one of the inmates at the Whitfield County Jail, and I received that this week. I'm writing on behalf of myself and two others here with me. We're all together in the Whitfield County Jail in quarantine. We've been here since December 1st. We were all three overwhelmed after receiving the Christmas bag which your, your church provided. We, of course, love the treats and the socks for our feet. Thank you. But the act, effort, care, thought, and feeling of love we felt is what touched us. The artwork from your little ones was especially loved. We have all transformed our bags into bookmarks that will accompany our reading daily, reminding us of the, of the, of the compassion and the true message of Jesus Christ and his love. I am moved to tears just writing this. Big, beautiful, happy tears. So know that your efforts were not in vain. We know that all the angels in heaven rejoice when one is brought home. Well, today, three were reminded where their eternal home was. And we rededicated ourselves together to the Father. Praise God, you made Christmas meaningful for us. Words cannot express my gratitude. Not none of us, not one of us, put much significant effort into presenting these gifts to the inmates at the jail. But it's a little effort that has brought about lots of seeds being planted, lots of water being poured into the soil, and maybe just maybe a little bit of gospel growth in one particular cell. And I don't know this man, and I, I wrote him back, and I don't know what comes of this and what the ultimate conviction of his faith and his life with Christ looks like. But I can tell you that living as a, as a citizen of Christ's kingdom is worth it. And living as a citizen of Christ's kingdom can be hard, but it's not actually all that complicated. Because the hardness is enduring the suffering and the pain and, and the inevitable trials of this life. But it's not complicated because the answer is really simple. To present the simple message of Jesus, to serve as Jesus served and to love as Jesus loved, and to just stand for the truth that he brought to us. And when we open our eyes to live not just for our own kingdoms, but for the kingdom of eternity, we're going to see far more opportunities than this one. And we're going to see far more fruit than this letter shows. And so I, my challenge this week, just open your eyes to the kingdom of inward life change and life transformation right in front of you. 
and see where God's calling you.